Hello and welcome to Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and you're in for a special treat today. Today we are kicking off a brand new segment of the show called Theology on Tap with Hayden Clark and, you guessed it, Jonathan Depew. John, what's going on, man? Not much, man. Uh, yeah, just chilling. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, kind yeah. of pretty disappointed. So I know you are. I know. So we decided to start this little segment where Jonathan and I kick back and crack a cold one and uh, talk <laughs> about theology. And so I went to the store to uh, get some beer, and I did not end up getting beer. This is actually a non-alcoholic beverage, and I wasn't even aware of it. <laughs> When I paid for it, I was trying to be cool and get these little crafty beers like Jonathan drinks, and uh, I'm more of like a pretty trashy Bud Light in a can kind of a guy. Uh, yeah. So I went and tried That's to get okay. something, tried to get something cute at the store, and ended up buying a non-alcoholic <laughs> beverage. So that's how well this is gonna go. Uh, yeah. John, John, what you got going on over there? So I have got. So this is called Radio Haze. This is from Noda brewing company it's out of charlotte north carolina which is about two hours from where i live so yeah it's good stuff nice i just had a sip of it earlier i don't know if anyone knows anything about hazy ipas they're kind of like mellower ipas that sort of cut through the what tends to be like the really bitter kind of bite that ipas tend to have so what's in it what does it taste like what's the flavor it's like fruity, so I, I'm. It's like orange tasting. Mm. Um, yeah. That's kind of the dominant fruity beer flavor profile, as I would say. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. as I would say, as a as <laughs> someone as who a knows what it, what they're talking about. As a connoisseur, as a beer connoisseur say. myself, which I am. Yeah, no, yeah. no, not at all. But so to the live stuff. to the live chat. Um, we want to say drink. Who's on there? We want to say drink responsibly. Well, your wife is, and she says she's locked out again. <laughs> Seriously? That's what the comment says. I don't know if she's kidding or not. Should I should I take this seriously? I don't know. Think? Laura, if you're really locked out, let us know if you're being for serious, guys. I know she left, no. but yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. Anyway, so, yeah, I did not end up getting <laughs> an actual beer like I was trying to do. We want to say drink responsibly. and uh, yeah, Drink responsibly. We, we have yeah. some people that are under 21. Wait until you're 21. I, I just heard her. I just heard her yell that it's a joke. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a joke. So. I could hear her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Drink, drink responsibly, drink of age, don't do anything stupid. We're not endorsing stupidity. anything like that at all. Yeah. Right. Just good old fashioned responsible fun. That's right. Yeah. So introduce us to today's uh, topic. So theology on tap, justification, and faith. What are we What are we talking about today? Yeah, so we're, we're going to be talking about justification in Paul, which tends to be related to to faith words in Paul. The question is, how do we actually uh, understand what justification means and how it actually relates to faith? What is faith? Whose faith is it? all that sort of stuff, um, they are related. They show up very closely to each other in a lot of Paul's texts. But the question is, how do we actually make sense of that relationship yeah. in Paul? Um, 
Yeah. So that's sort of how I would kind of. Yeah. I think, I think it's a really big topic. Like people, it's just within theology, the umbrella of theology, this kind of falls under, I guess, soteriology. And uh, so. It's, oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, sure. uh, it's really important to people. So. Uh, okay, let's let's start with uh, what does the word justification mean, and kind of what are some uh, first. Let me say to the to the audience if you actually have a like a legit question for either Jonathan or me, uh, tag at help me believe at the beginning of the comment, and that just kind of helps me see it. Uh, we may actually do things a little different since this is kind of a different thing that we're doing already. Uh, may just kind of address them as we go as opposed to waiting till the end of the live. Uh, that's good. Q and yeah. A, Q and A, but just kind of whatever sure. I feel like. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, so, what does the word justification mean, and uh, what are some common approaches to justification? Sure, I, I'm. I don't want to give a definition of the word yet. Okay. Because that's kind of takes some exegetical kind of. Uh, God, this tastes so bad. Okay, go ahead. True. <laughs> It's not my fault. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so what I'm going to do first is sort of give common approaches to justification in Paul, um, and I, I think there are basically three dominant ones. And so I'm leaving out initially the one that I hold to, but there are three that are sort of have dominated the discussion on Paul, and then we can talk about mine in my own approach after that. Um, so the first one is really the, I mean, I don't really know what to call, what to actually call it. Um, the traditional Protestant approach or like the reformed approach or something like that. Some people call it the Lutheran approach or even justification theory, which is what Douglas Campbell calls it. Um, so this approach is quite, uh, dominant in the discussion on Paul um, and has been for quite some time. And it really, it, it it's really about God's kind of judicial verdict, um, pronouncing people who are guilty sinners, technically, um, who turn toward Jesus for faith and for forgiveness. Um, and they're acquitted of all of the stuff that they've been charged with because they've been sinful. Um, so they have faith. God turns some kind of uh, judicial wrath that he has toward sinful people and gives it to them um, when they have faith in Jesus. So that's kind of a, a basic definition. So let's get into a little bit more detail about this. Um, so, essentially, before God, people necessarily stand guilty by virtue of being sinful. So they've sinned, they've done some bad stuff, they've broken God's law, all of that. And so God is really, really irritated with them and wants to condemn them to death. So that's kind of the initial starting point for this account. Um, but God reveals a way that sinners can make the, can be right before God, not make themselves right, but can be right before God. Um, so what happens is God sends Jesus to take on the, uh, the negative verdict that is due to them, the sort of punishment that they 
um, deserve, basically, um, for being disobedient, for breaking God's law, for not doing the things that they're supposed to do. So Jesus comes and takes that on in his death, specifically. So he gets punished, he dies, gets crucified, all that. Um, So what happens then is when somebody has faith in Jesus, when they believe in Jesus as the Lord, um, they get all of Christ's good stuff. So Christ as the sort of perfect, righteous human being has all of this stuff. And so when he dies, he can give that stuff to people if they believe, right? So that this is what people sometimes call the great exchange. So Christ gets what we deserve, all of the bad punishment, wrath, all of that sort of stuff. And then we get what he has. This is called imp- so, imputation. This is called imputation. Yeah, double imputation, really, because Christ gets all the bad stuff, too. So right. it's, that's the exchange, right? Um, the key thing here is it's through faith alone that we actually get all of this stuff, that we're actually justified. So we, this is why people talk about justification by faith alone. We get justified when we believe in Jesus, and then we get all of his good stuff, and Jesus gets what we deserve. Um, so that, that's kind of how the Reformed, I guess— uh, traditional Protestant model works. And there are some key things here, I think. Um, one of them is that it, it depicts God as fundamentally wrathful toward human beings because they sin. And human beings are basically guilty in themselves and so condemned in that way. They're helpless. They can't do anything to get themselves out of it. They're trapped in that situation. There's sort of there's some pressure coming from the law, God's law, that they can't really meet. And so God offers them another kind of uh, situation, and that's Jesus, an easier kind of situation. Um, and it only really re- requires faith instead of trying to work your way toward salvation. Um, So you have this harsh kind of contract, this harsh conditional situation up front, and then you get this easier one that people can respond to and get saved. Um, So I think that's key in this this kind of approach, is that there's this harsh contract and then an easier one that shows up with Jesus, and then people respond to that. So um, yeah, I think that's basically the the old model. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Any thoughts about that? I mean, I, I think your description of it is pretty accurate. The there's does seem to be this element. I mean, you kind of, uh, you know, as a, I'm sure I'm sure it was a bit tongue in cheek, but you said uh, uh, this kind of irritates God, and so he wants to be wrathful or something. But I, yeah. I think there's an element in there where the person who holds to this theory would say. What's really going on is that sin is an offense against God's holiness somehow. Um, yeah, they would bring up God's holiness, right? Yeah. Right. That's kind of the the basis of this. Yeah. God's holiness, although it's it's really intertwined with God's justice, so yeah. it's a particular kind of justice too. Yeah. It's retribution up front. You know, one um, one thing I've been thinking about lately is how this that what we're just discussing right there, like God being offended 
essentially is what it is. I mean, it's an offense to his holiness yes. that, yep. that kind of necessitates injustice and justice. Yeah, yeah. His justice. Yeah. It kind of necessitates his justice because he's, uh, his holiness has been offended. Yes. But I wonder if God's holiness even can be offended because of something like say God's immutability or God's uh, impassibility. Uh, yeah. Can it's God, even, can God even be, I mean, cause essentially you're saying God is affected by our actions. Yeah. They offend yeah. him. Now, I mean, I don't know yeah. what the classical theists have to say about this. I haven't read. I'm sure they have something. I'm, I don't really know in, either. In, in 27 yeah. years, yeah. I haven't had an original thought or question. So I try to assume that somebody has an answer somewhere. <laughs> I've, I've, a couple of times I've thought I've had one and then, you know, I never do, unfortunately. But yeah, that's what's on my yeah. mind is like, is that even possible? If God is impassable, if God is immutable, mm-hmm. um, like the church has affirmed, you know, for the last 2000 years, can you really be sure. offended by our sin? Uh, that That's the question on my mind. So yeah, I'm not posing it for discussion or anything like that, unless you have any thoughts. No, on it, but yeah. no. You would think that if, um, I mean, I, I don't want to say that God's not affected by the things we do hmm. at know. all. Um, but something that clearly sort of elicits a very harsh response from God yeah. and, in this way. Yeah. That seems kind of weird to me. Mm. Um, in, in that seems to, in this model, it seems to really establish God's, who God is yeah. in this. Well, it, okay. it really makes, it, and this is how it often even gets put. So I know I'm not, you know, straw manning or anything here, but every offense, yeah, right, is right. Uh, has an equal punishment, which is you know, depending on who you're talking to, could be uh, eternal conscious torment forever. Uh, yeah, that's what the word eternal means. So I didn't need to throw that in there, but uh, yeah, so just being a conscious, <laughs> consciously tormented forever for you know what, stealing out of the cookie jar, uh, yeah. and that's the so, same yeah. punishment yeah. for this, the person who you know, commits murder or something worse. Yeah. So there, there's really no proportionality, yeah, I think no, is what you're getting at. Yeah. People, this, will, uh, people will say something that yeah. I think silly, like, well, God is perfectly holy. And so that equals, yeah. eternal what, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, good point with the, uh, the immutability stuff. I think that's that's worth talking about and thinking about. I don't have much to say about that other than I agree with you <laughs> that it seems kind of weird that yeah. um, that they that this model would say that it our sin affects God so much that He would do this and and have to mm-hmm. really have to punish Jesus. Mm-hmm. He has to to satisfy his wrath. So, yeah. so obviously, what's creeping behind this is the penal substitutionary atonement, which I'm not trying to open that. Can it's of, within it. Yeah, it's it, no, to, it's within. That's it. like part yeah, and parcel. Everything I just said, trying to critique. Yeah, it's contained within it. Is yeah. is really a critique yeah. of penal substitutionary atonement? Uh, there was a question. Yeah. Let me scroll back up here from Nick. Uh, Nick Quint asks, uh, "How? Oh no, not that one." One second. Uh, how does justification relate to ethics and the character of God? An example: How right slash wrong is uh, Kaisman? Maybe you know that name. Kaisman. Yeah. Kaisman. Maybe you want to wait to answer we'll talk, that later. Or... We'll talk about that later because okay. I, I I will bring up Kaisman later to talk about the Kaisunate that or the righteousness of God. Yeah. 
because I think Kazamon is basically exactly right yeah. on the righteousness of, of God. So we, yeah. we can wait on that yeah. if, if Nick yeah. is, <laughs> unless he has a burning question kind of within that. Do you have, do you have somewhere we'll, to be, Nick? We'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. No, maybe we'll just save the Q&A for at the end like I normally do. Um, no, it's okay. I, I like the kind of interjections from people who are asking questions. I do, um, unless it's difficult for you. Yeah, but no, that's good. I kind of... Uh, yeah. There, there is kind of this um, alternative, but it's kind of similar model. Whenever I'm reading through um, Athanasius, where he has this line where he says something yeah. like, um, "If it was just a matter of being forgiven, then repentance would be enough," and that's really getting back to the atonement. Mm -hmm. um, but underneath that seems to, it's different than this model, but it shares. It seems. Um, that God is going to punish sinners, right? Because Athanasius is basically saying, yeah, for that part, this is how I understand it. I'm sure you've read Athanasius as well, so you can correct me. But what he seems to be saying is, yes, that's part of it, but repenting is, uh, God can forgive you just because you repent. Uh, Jesus' death isn't necessarily about that. What it's about is, uh, healing us, uh, the things that uh, probably that you would want to say about the atonement as well. So does that, yeah. does that, I mean, am I reading too much into that statement where he, I mean, he says something to the effect, like if it was just about being forgiven, repentance would be enough. But behind that seems to be sharing common with what we were just talking about, that God does want to or uh, punish sinners. Yeah, it seems to kind of clash with that, right? Um, what Athanasius is saying with what I was just laying out with the kind of reformed Protestant model. I don't really know. I don't know what to call it. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, I'll just use the term Lutheran if that's okay. It's fine the Lutheran. I'm not a Lutheran, model. so you're not going to fit me. If there are any Lutherans on the live chat, I'm sorry. I'm sure it doesn't apply to you. Um, so, uh, uh yes. yeah. So that's, that's one model. Uh, what, uh how else do people think about uh, justification? So, yeah, before we go on, I want to kind of just kind of summarize sure. things. So uh, justification on that model is really an act of God in the sense of a kind of legal declaration or juridical pronouncement, basically in a courtroom. So it's implying a kind of courtroom setting. Um, it's declaring that certain people are righteous because they have jesus's righteousness because they've had faith right and then on the flip side of that people are judged guilty in that courtroom because they don't they're in trouble they're guilty ultimately um and usually the way it works is they get sent to hell forever um but so that that it's important that we think of, the, of this sort of in terms of a courtroom scenario because that's what these folks sort of endorse about this. Um, so, yeah, just keep that in mind as we go forward. Sure. It's a courtroom. Yeah. Okay. So the other approach, um, well, there are a couple others that I'm going to talk about, but um, uh, the next one that will clearly sort of uh, demonstrate a difference between the old reading and this one is the Catholic approach to justification. 
Um, a lot of Protestants get this wrong um, <laughs> because we think Catholics are a bunch of uh, legalists, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, they do a bunch of stuff. They get saved. They, yeah. Um, they're actually kind of similar in a lot of ways. Um, I think the difference is they talk about impartation specifically that God, um, God grants you this sort of righteousness that he has, which is different than his own righteousness. So the Catholics will distinguish between the righteousness that we get through Christ yeah. from um, God's own justice or righteousness. Um, so an example of this would be Augustine is just or righteous, and God is just or righteous. They're different things. They may be related sort of analogically, but they, they're really talking about different sorts of right. uh, theoretical concepts of justice. So that, that's sort of where Catholics are coming from, is that yeah. they're, they're different. They're different things. Yeah. Um, another thing that, that Catholics want to say about this, um, they, so to be clear, they essentially talk about justification words in the same sort of way as um, Lutherans. Um, it is in the courtroom. It is a verdict. It's a declaration of who you are. Um, well, they're probably both going back but, to Augustine, if I had to guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but another main difference is Catholics really want to bring in sanctification into justification. So they're one and the same, mm -hmm. essentially. There's no sort of order where you go from justification to sanctification. Um, justification really requires our response and involvement and our transformation in that um, in that process. So justification is a kind of process for them um, where God declares you righteous and then also starts transforming you. Um, so I think that's that's the main difference is it's it's not that God is giving you his own stuff, his own justice that he has in, in himself. He justifies you. And then you're transformed, and um, you you kind of uh, respond to that in your own kind of uh, agency or freedom or whatever. So I think this is basically what the Council of, of Trent is doing with justification, um, ultimately. Um, so that's kind of how I would summarize that. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Do yeah. You? So is it? It's uh, it is a justification by faith. Um, faith, I don't think is a sufficient condition for Catholics. Mm. What is the sufficient condition? It's God's grace. So it's, um, is it pretty Calvinistic then, in that sense? No. So this is where. Yeah, so this is where the uh, sacraments of the church come into play. <laughs> oh, okay. So when you're baptized into the church, so it is a works righteousness. Church, um, no, <laughs> not necessarily. Um, when you are baptized into the church and you come under the teaching of the Catholic Church, you are justified. Um, 
Paul talks about justification within the context of, of baptism in Romans 6, which I'll talk about later, although I will do different things with it. Um, but that's kind of where they're coming from. Right. Um, that when you're when you enter into the Catholic Church, into the faith, which is the true church for them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're not the true church. <laughs> we're right, we're separated from communion with them. Right. Um then then you're justified through that. So that's hard. I understand. I'm a hardcore Protestant. I get it. But um, it really is grace all the way down for Catholics in this. I really want to emphasize that. Um, it's not your doing. It is God's doing. So anything you do is coming from God, ultimately. Um, so we can't just say it's works-based. Okay. Um, I don't think that's, that's fair at all. Let's, let's get to the, uh... I disagree with it, but <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's, uh, but, yeah. let's get to the apocalyptic view. Or did you have another one too? Okay. Yeah, the new perspective. Oh, okay, yeah. Has a kind of view of justification too. Unless you want to skip that, I'm fine with that. No, we you... can talk yeah. about the the new perspective. Yeah, so this is sort of coming from uh NT Wright's work. Right. NTW. Um, NTW. So he, he's not. Uh, I wouldn't want to reduce the new perspective to him. He kind of actually doesn't really like that label, but whatever. Um, I don't care that much. Uh, so, so for him, uh, Paul uses dikaiao, which really is just justified um, language. And it's cognates to talk about – it's not really talking about conversion or becoming a Christian yeah. for right. Um, Paul uses this word to describe a kind of um, process by which we're coming out of idolatry. Mm. Um, so dikaio for right – it is a declarative word, like the old perspective of the Lutheran reading, but it's it's really declaring something that's really been the case for you prior to justification. Gotcha. So with the, the the Lutheran reading, that's off the table entirely. What God does in His justification of you for that reading is uh, is your conversion. It's your entrance into the Christian faith. For right, it's really indicating something that's been true of you before. Um, so for him, it, it is a law court kind of term, um, but it's declaring something about you that's been true before. Um, so an, another way that he talks about this is justification is a declaration that you are in the right you were in the NT, right? Um, the, nice. <laughs> your sin has been, yeah, your sin has been forgiven through Jesus's death, right? Um, but also, it's a declaration that you are a part of God's family too, and that's true about you. You're in God's family, which is the covenant that's been started through Abraham, and has now been fulfilled in Christ. Um, so, do you see the difference between this and? the lutheran reading well, I see the so the lutheran of, um, reading resists yeah. resists any sort of 
idea that the declaration is about something that you th- that is true about you yeah. before that declaration. Whereas Wright is saying, no, that's really what's happening. And it says that you are a part of God's covenant people. What too. does what does Wright think you are saved from and how do you get saved from it? Um, good question. I think he would say your Christians are saved from sin and death and all that good stuff. So he, he tends to think kind of apocalyptically at this point. Um, but he has this big narrative about Israel and the people of Israel being in exile. Um, yeah, I saw his video. So it's with, also, uh, uh, yeah. With, uh, sorry, what's his name? Uh, I draw blanks on interviews. Sorry, uh, Douglas Campbell. No, you're sorry. Yeah, Douglas Campbell. Yeah. So he has a, he has this big story where Israel, or Israel is in exile and sort of waiting for something to happen to get them out of it. So, in some ways, they're delivered from that situation that sort of exilic situation too it's quite confusing to me i don't really understand the is the analogy <laughs> right is it the analogy they're uh, they're exiled in uh, maybe maybe Egypt nick and, if nick and, is in the chat yeah. he can help us out because he, he knows right better than i do well if i just but even I, had to, I just don't understand yeah. it At, yeah. is the analogy they're exiled in egypt and under that kind of a, a maybe like a literal like a slavery and uh, we are exiled under sin and death in this kind of a slavery. And we all have been since Eden. Is that what it's supposed to be? Sure. That makes sense for uh, Gentiles specifically. But I think he would he would make a historical move on Israel too. That the coming back of Israel from exile is what's happening in Jesus too. Um and I'm I'm talking about the sort of gap between the old and new testaments where you have a kind of exile situation yeah. okay. going on. Yeah. Um, I think that's what he's talking about. I think he's um, right that exile is a big theme in biblical theology. I mean, you could shoot that through and through all the way, like I just did. Like we've been in exile since Eden in that sense. Like if we're going to draw these analogies. Yeah, is, is the sure. problem is the problem say that you or Douglas Campbell would have being that uh, that's not necessarily false, but is that what Paul had in mind? Yes. Okay, I was making right. sure I understood that because I was listening to Campbell <laughs> critique him, and uh, you yeah. know they, they kind of get a little sassy with each other. I don't. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's in Paul. Um, I think Paul is doing something a bit different. I think with... Wright is just saying, look. Paul is is, is, yeah. is right, and I haven't read N.T. Wright on this matter. I've read him on other matters. But is he just saying that, look, this is such a big theme that this Second Temple Jew would have this in, say, like his background? Sure. That's what he's saying, but he's not showing precisely how Paul would be um, picking that stuff up into his text. He, he simply just says, this is what's going, this is sort of ubiquitous in the second temple Jewish 
context. Right. So of course Paul would know. Well, sure, but where is Paul sort of uh, where is he actually activating that story specifically into his text, right. into his words, into his phrases? Um, that's the question, and I don't think he's actually answering that. I I I haven't seen where he's answered that. So um, it's a it's this is what's attractive about right right like it's he tells this big story about Israel and exile and all that sort of stuff um, and s- sees that in Paul's text, but he's not showing precisely where Paul is evoking that, other than there are these sort of vague echoes in Paul's letters which is, that's not enough it's not it it just isn't so sorry nt right um <laughs> so yeah. uh what's the what's the apocalyptic version yeah i just like so saying the, the word the, so apocalyptic there's a yeah. show called a movie called what's it called apocalyptica or something it's like they characters like barely ever speak it's set in like uh, oh interesting it's set, yeah. in, it's set in like before uh people came to the americas and it's like these uh, tribal people here and oh man i can't I oh think, um, i think it's called apocalyptica yeah. or something like that it's super is it good apocalypto uh, yeah that's what it is okay apocalypto? Yeah. yeah i'm putting like a i haven't seen I'm it putting like I've a spanish accent it. on the end of it for some reason <laughs> Apocalyptica. That's probably how you say apocalyptic doing, in Spanish. You've been doing too much Spanish. Um, oh, my Duolingo. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the apocalyptic approach. So just to kind of back up, so we need to remember that Paul is writing in Greek, <laughs> which is very obvious, I'm sure, to people who are listening to this. So he has a range of justice and righteousness terms that he's using um biblical scholars will refer to these as dikaio words coming from the dick stem um and we can look at two of these going forward um the first one would be dikaio which is what Wright was talking about dikaio being justified um or declared righteous so that that's that term specifically. And then you have the noun phrase, dekaiosunethehu, so the righteousness or justice of God. Um, but, okay, let's look at the first 11 verses of Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 through 11. Especially 3 to 4, I think is really important for us. Um, Paul's talking about baptism, which I alluded to earlier when I was talking about the the specifically Catholic account, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you get justified by baptism. I don't think that's exactly what Paul's doing, but, um, okay. So Romans six, three to four, do you know, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so we're united to Christ in his death here, right? Our flesh 
was terminated. I've talked about this a lot on your channel and elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're also raised with Christ um, to the Father into a new situation. Okay. So we're, we're not left in the ground. We're actually raised, transformed, all that sort of stuff. Our old self is crucified. So verse 6 um, suggests that. But let's look at verses 7 and 8. The one who has died, usually this gets translated as uh, anyone or someone who has died, but that's not quite right. Uh, now mine says the one. The one. Yeah, the one who has died, so Christ, yeah, is freed from sin. But if we die or have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay? It finally clicked for me. Okay, good. Why didn't you say this such a long time ago? Or maybe you did. <laughs> I I'm sure I have. I love this Because mine says for well, the one, but I'm hearing it in yeah, my head like, Jesus. like the other yeah. translation. It's not a generic kind of account of people initially. That comes after, right? Jesus dies, is set free, and we die, and we're set free. But I'm guessing the argument is to interpret it differently as uh, the generic uh, interpreting interpreting it as something like uh, anyone who has died has been free from sin would be because in verse 6, um, the last subject is we, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. But I don't know. Yeah, but then it, it, it would be redundant. So if we read it as if anyone has died, uh, for whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Well, it's That's it's an explanation. Redundant. Mine says that we may no but longer. But it says but. If... Is it but? Because mine says we may no. Yeah. And again, I'm happy if it yeah, is. It doesn't actually it. matter to me that much. I'm just wondering uh, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. So when it re when you read it like that in the English, yeah, yeah. it sounds I, like I'm an explanation. About the, no, I'm yeah, I'm talking about the the sentence after. Oh, you talking about verse is, eight? But if we, yeah, okay, yeah, but if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. So if seven is also talking about us, eight is redundant. Well, maybe not. But if well, I'm just going to continue playing Christ, devil's advocate, um, just for fun. No. Okay, so seven says, for yeah. the one who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live. But if we, yeah. yeah. But if we died with Christ, so if you read it with that inflection on it in English, it sounds okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't buy that. I think it has to be, it has to be Christ. Yeah. No, I can um, see how it could go either way. Uh, I don't know, obviously, enough about. No, no, it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. All right. So, go ahead. Setting that aside. Yeah. So, right here in the middle of this account of dying and rising with Christ, we have a really, really crucial piece of information here about justification. In verse seven, Paul uses the passive form of the Greek verb dikaio. In the context of being immersed into Christ's death and resurrection, it doesn't really seem like Paul's saying that we're being justified or de declared righteous, right? In any way that we usually think of that word or those words. And most translations actually know this. So most translations will say set free, something like that, released, 
Um, but that's exactly right. Bikaya'o can only mean here being released or set free or delivered from the grip of sin and death. But it's Dikaya'o. It's justification language. <laughs> and that needs to tell us something, right? Um, so one way of kind of grasping this would be, what does a person need if they're enslaved? Yeah. Hey, real quick, before you go further, I just want to make sure that I've understood and uh, everyone else has too. So in verse yeah. 7, when it says, for the one who has died has been, uh, for the one who has died has been freed from sin. You're, sa you're saying it, it could yeah, that's be. That's the passive form of Dikaio. Yeah, so just to yeah. read it uh, differently, we could say, for the one who has died has been justified from sin, which would be a little yeah, bit confusing, and, and that's why the yeah. word freed is used there. And even if you put declared righteous in there, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Unless you just want to completely yeah. rework what you mean by righteous and justified. Yeah. To, but, to but include the word not, freed. Yeah. But, sure, sure. But, but it's just, also not paying yeah. attention to the, the context of the verse, which is all about slavery and freedom. Right. Yeah, no, right? yeah. Huh. So if you're enslaved and oppressed or taken captive by something, what do you need? You need to be set free. Yeah. So that that's what the word is doing. Delivered. Um, you need to be delivered. Which right? is an exilic term. Yeah. So justification, being justified, I think, really means to be delivered, to be set free. Yeah. Um, now, biographically, let's think about Paul for a second. Uh, real quick. Paul, Sorry. Spartan, yeah. Spartan theology in the question? chat. Well, it's not chat, but it was interesting. Uh, Spartan Theology in the chat says the ESV version uh, uh, that he has linked it linked the one to First Peter four one which speaks of Christ. So nice. I don't know. Good move. I don't know First Peter four one off the top of my head, but uh, yeah. I don't like the ESV very much, but that's a good. That's <laughs> that's a good move. Uh, I like that. Uh... Anyway, you okay. may, you may so, continue. Yeah. The biographical point that I want to bring up, which could illuminate some of this, um, Paul spent a lot of time in jail. We know that from his letters. And what would happen is an official, who is usually quite corrupt in the ancient world, would make a decision about whether or not Paul would be released were executed hmm. right so in a roman prison situation you don't really know if you're gonna live or die in that situation which is quite scary um right. so this this official would say okay get rid of this guy he can go away send paul away right yeah. verdict you have a verdict there and that's a forensics kind of situation but it's a verdict of liberation. Yeah, It's a verdict. It's a declaration of your being set free. So Paul doesn't get executed. He gets sent away with his life. Right? right? So Paul knew this. He was thinking about this stuff quite a bit. Um, so being justified really means being liberated, being set free, being delivered um, from the hands of your enemies, really. Uh 
so that's kind of the the apocalyptic approach to this. Well, it's I not think a the law most important part is yeah. uh, I just for me I think the most important part is understanding that last little phrase that you said there being set free from your enemies. On the traditional mm-hmm. on the traditional or I don't know what you want to call it the Lutheran what you're being set free from would be God's wrath. God. Yeah, God's wrath, which from is to God. say God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. God has yeah. wrath towards you. God dies for you in order to liberate you from his own wrath. It's getting back, yeah. so, it's getting back to the penal substitution, but. Yeah, so let me pick up on that. Um, so uh, we have an, a, the noun phrase that we haven't talked about, which is the righteousness of God. Um so let's go to Romans 1, 16 to 17, which I'm sure you know well by now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is the power of God for 1, 16 to 17. Yeah. Okay. Not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith or is believing to the Jew first and also the Greek for it is the dekaiosin theu, the righteousness or deliverance of God or justice of God, whatever you want to say, is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous one through faith will live. So Paul's not pulling words out of his ass here, um, just to be clear. Uh, he's, Dang, I, don't he's have a button. I don't have a button for that. <laughs> My bad. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's referencing Psalm 98, um, especially 2 to 3. Psalm 98? God's right hand. Psalm 98, 2 to 3. God's right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So you you can probably see the connections between these biblical texts, right? Between what Psalm 98 is doing. Well, it'd be really cool if the same word was used in the Septuagint. It is. It is the same word? It's Deoc, whatever? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's also, you you also have... uh, Apocalypse You have the same apocalypse word too. I would have to look specifically at that. So you have words that are being used that are explicitly quoting this song. And they're in a liberation context. Yeah, which is how we know that Paul's using it. Again, we have to know from Paul's text that he's actually using scriptures from the Old Testament, from the Septuagint, right? And that's exactly what we get here. Right, and you you also have okay. Jews, house of Israel. You also have Greeks. You have the nations. Yeah. Right. So let me just um, let me summarize because it was kind of an epiphany for Hayden at least. So maybe it'll help anybody else make make sense of this. The word used for righteousness in the New Testament, at least in the last two contexts that John has pointed out uh, for Paul, he's using Psalm ninety eight, which has the same exact noun the noun form of righteous uh, righteousness in a liberation context and so it's not in this law court kind of context it's in a liberation context and so whenever we see paul use it similarly in romans um 
John and the apocalyptic school want to say that's he's using it exactly how it was used in the Old Testament, which is to say it's a liberation. It's not a uh, what would the antithesis yes. be? Um, it's not a verdict of innocence or guilt in a law court. It's a verdict of liberation. It's about being set free. So um, to kind of press into this a little bit more, because I think we we need to, and this will clarify some things too. Um, so we need to remember that this psalm is really a psalm about divine kingship. Right, The person writing the psalm rejoices as God arrives with his right hand and holy arm. So that's in verse 2 of Psalm 98. Um, so that's sort of a symbol of sovereign power and rule. Um, so Paul really wants his listeners to hear the words of the story of God's reign that runs through the psalms and also much of the Old Testament scriptures too. Um, so this this sort of kingly story about God contains really vital information about what we're talking about when we talk about righteousness. But it, 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 he's doing so in a particular way. Paul is, is pulling this through in a very particular way. Um, let's think about the Old Testament for, for a second. God is often described as a king in the Old Testament, right? And he's oftentimes appealed to to save people from a, a really bad situation that they're in from extremity right for example um when people are taken captive by enemies people call to god to save them um so it makes sense when righteousness or justice language occurs in these contexts because it's, it's referring to a saving and rescuing action by God. Um, but Paul's language is also su suggesting that there really is something right and just about this in a very basic sense. It's right and just for a king to save his people right. <laughs> from extremity, right? That's the correct thing to do for a good king. Kings have responsibilities to the king's people to save them, yeah. right? Um, and the same goes for the divine king. In situations where God's people are in a kind of difficulty or an oppressed situation, something right or just happens when God saves them. That's right. That's just. So the, the definition of rightness is God's saving activity. So, I mean, this makes sense of even the right the sort of righteousness or right language and also the just language that all has to do with liberation for Paul. Um, one thing real quick before we move on, or if you have any questions, no. um, I think we need to remember that God's saving activity, um, it resonates more strongly with, executive activity in our modern kind of understanding of things. Um, in modern nation states, we think of the executive branch as being apart from the judicial branch, right? Thinking of like schoolhouse rock, right? Three I'm rings of government. Bill, right? Sitting <laughs> right? on Capitol Hill. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> so we we have the separation between executive and and judicial kind of stuff. But in the ancient world, those two were basically the same. So when God is acting in this way to rightly save people, that's also a judicial action. Right. It's not just an executive one. Right. So they're they're sort of one and the same. The, the, the deliverance of God is being revealed there for Paul. It's the saving action. And th- so this is going back to what Nick indicated. Kazamon is exactly right on the righteousness of God because it's a saving activity um, that happens through Jesus. It's saving. What is I, I'm, what's I'm he right about? The, I don't know the context. What's that? What's he right about? I don't know the context. Uh, the the uh, righteousness or the of God is a saving, delivering activity. So what's the ethical which implication? Is the ethical stuff? That's what uh, – uh, that was Nick's question. He said, what does it mean for ethics or something? I had to go back and look. But oh. It even brought, uh, he did bring up uh, however you yeah. pronounced that, Kaisman. But uh, yeah. I keep saying it wrong. What's the ethical implications? So if, you, if you've been, yeah, uh, if you've been, if you've been delivered from. Okay, here it is. How does justification relate to ethics and the character? Oh, the ethics and character of God. Example: How right and wrong is Kazamon? Yeah. Okay. Never mind. So Kazamon's exactly right. Um, <laughs> uh, the. So how does this relate to ethics? I think that's specifically I think that's going back to what you just said about how the executive and the judicial is wrapped in one. It's uh, God's deliverance is like ethical, just in that it's just in the ethical sense because that's what kings is, that's what kings talking, ought to do. Yeah, sure. Is, is Nick talking about? Uh, Human ethics. Now he said Christian the ethical. Ethics. Yeah, no, he said the the ethics and justice of God. So he's talking about. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think I've answered that. Right, then. you did. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Great. Perfect. Yeah. So that's what I would say about justification. It's about God delivering you, and this is we see this in his use of Takaya words. So I'm perfectly fine. Um, Accepting all of this, I mean, it, it seems quite Great. quite clear that Paul. Uh, it, there's another thing where it's like um, I think of, I just think things in my head like this, but it's like okay, that could be true. Uh, maybe it's the law court in other places, and Paul, I don't know, not a Paulian scholar, but this. It's, it's not. <laughs> I'm just saying, like the texts we just looked at, I say, yeah, that makes sense, uh, and I'm fine if that's. Yeah. I'm actually, I mean, I'm fine if that's the way it is everywhere. I'm just thinking, like, maybe there's other texts. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe the other people on the other side of things have a point, too. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> they, have, they have no point. They've been wrong for the yeah. last thousand they're, years. Yeah, uh, they've been out. They're they out to lunch, those people. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm happy with all of this. Yeah. Uh, cool. Probably where you and I would do well, it's not probably. We've talked about all of this before. Um, it's going to be on the faith. Um, so I don't know how yes. you want to start this. Okay, yeah. So I view faith as a condition of uh, yes, having the benefits of God's deliverance applied to you, or however you want to word that. Um, but anyway, do you, I'll let you open the can of worms of that it is faith. Okay, so what is faith in Paul, right? Yeah. 
Um, so to to start this, I've been kind of racking my brain to figure out how to, how to approach this. How to, twist, um, how to twist these scriptures around? Yeah. How to how to insert eisegesis into the text. How to elevate um, man's word over God's word. So that's right. To... How, to, how to make the scriptures say what I, I want them to say. Um, you got this. Yeah. I believe in you. Yeah. Um, so I think when we're talking about Paul's gospel, the story that he tells about Jesus, Jesus sort of descent into humanity his death, being raised by the Father through the Spirit. Um, I think we need to pause and ask what kind of story this is. So I think Philippians 2.8 is going to give us a pretty good indication of this. Philippians 2.8. Jesus hum- humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Mm-hmm even death on a cross. So Paul describes Christ's kind of descent journey in terms of obedience. Christ faithfully responds to God the Father um, and God's loving command by becoming a human being, which Paul describes as an act of humility, right? And this ultimately results in him dying a slave's death on the cross. Sorry, dying a death in the uh, in outer space. Um, oh, thank you. Yes, important qualification. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's up there. Um, it's in the firmament. So, <laughs> the firmament, not outer space. The firmament. Yeah. Um, and you also get this account of Jesus's obedient journey in Romans five twelve to twenty one. So. We talked about this a bit last time. Um, For just as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, i.e. Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So Christ's obedience is joined to the Christian kind of life there. And this is a kind of dimension of faith that we'll talk about or I want to talk about it in a bit, but I, I think there's something else going on there. Uh, so Christ's obedience should be understood as his carrying out this task from the Father to address the problem of the cosmos um, in terms of faith and his faithfulness. Um, so let's talk about Jesus's faith for a second. So Pauline scholars have been engaged in a pretty consistent debate about whether or not Paul is talking about faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. So the contested Greek phrase is pistis Christu, which appears most often in Galatians and Romans. The problem is the phrase is ambiguous. It just is. We actually have numerous examples of that ambiguity in English as well. So phrases like the love of my wife or the fear of my wife (laughs) are not clear upon initial reading, right? right? The first phrase could mean the love that I have for my wife. 
but it could also mean the love that my wife has for somebody else, right? And the second phrase could mean the fear I have of my wife. <laughs> Sorry, Laura, if you're listening. Um, or something like... You should have a fear. Something my wife is afraid of, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> I am afraid of her. Uh, so we, <laughs> we, we need context clues to actually make sense of that genitive construction, right? And the same goes for pistis Christi in the Greek. Yeah. Most often you'll have the uh, faith in Christ as the translation. Um, this is often called the objective reading of the genitive. Um, it's a person's faith that you have, and Christ is the object of that faith, right? So it's a kind of person-centered account of faith there. The other option is a subjective reading, which is the faith of Christ. In this case, Christ himself is the one who has faith. Uh, we could call this a Christ-centered account of faith. And a lot of people have a lot at stake in whether or not it's faith in Christ or faith of Christ. Yeah. Uh, is Paul talking principally about a faith that you have? Or is he talking about Jesus there and his faith? Um, any questions at this point? No, I understand what you're talking about. Um, is it, the question is, are, are these do these phrases mean faith in Christ or the faith of Christ? Or Christ's faithfulness yes. or it, our faithfulness to Christ? Yeah. So yeah. that's it's a question that comes up. Yeah. Um, I, I have comments, but it really depends on where you go next. So, uh, okay, I, cool. I, you know, um, conversations so, we've already had before. So, yeah. Sure. So to begin to kind of answer this, um, I would want to remind us again that Paul's gospel came to him as a revelation of Jesus mm -hmm. himself. So Paul views Jesus and as therefore the Therefore, he didn't have any access to anybody who knew Jesus as a historical person. So, mm. yeah. So we really don't know if Jesus is a historical person. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to go down that road. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, keep going. I'm trolling. In case nobody yeah. got the context. Go no, ahead. I wouldn't want to say that. Uh, so Christ is the one through whom all things have been created and the one through whom all things are being reconciled back to God, right? So Paul conceives of his own and our own kind of existence in Christ. So he already centers everything on Christ in his gospel. It's all about Jesus. Um, so initially, we could be pretty confident that the subjective reading is right. But there's actually good textual evidence for this, too. Um, so let's look at Romans 1.17 again. Let's see if my Logos wants to... If you want to pull it up? Cooperate. Uh, I'm not going to screen share, but yeah, I'm going to pull it up for myself. Go ahead. Okay, so you have Paul quoting Habakkuk 2.4 there. Uh... Quite obviously, everyone sees this. Um, 
And he's applying it to Christ, messianically, who is the righteous one in that text. Yeah. That's Christ. Yeah. Right? But look closely. The text says Christ. No, it doesn't say Christ. The righteous one, who is Christ, through faith will live. We know that Paul views Christ himself as the righteous one, but what is faith doing there? Right? Is Jesus believing in something or someone or whatever? What does Paul mean? I think we can discern from kind of the, I don't know if I talked about this in terms of two acts of salvation or not, but you have the descent, you have the ascent of Jesus. So there's that two act kind of account of salvation there. I can't remember if I actually did that here, but um, uh, that doesn't really matter that much. Um, so you, you have Christ coming into the world to save a, a, a lost cosmos, right? right. So the, the faith that Paul is speaking of in Romans one seventeen, it seems to be Christ's faithfulness unto death at that point. So Paul is using the faithfulness of this generic person in Habakkuk 2.4 to point to Christ in his unwavering faithfulness to the Father whereby he assumes our sinful condition and all of that sort of stuff. And you have actually Paul using zeisitai there, so life language, which seems to be sort of infused with this Christocentric meaning of resurrection. It's, it's not just any life, it's new life there. Um, that's coming straight out of Habakkuk 2.4. Um, so it seems like he's, he's talking about Christ there in that text. It's Christ's faith. The question I have on, on Romans one seventeen is, okay, it says, For the righteousness of God is revealed in it, that is the gospel. Um, and you want to understand righteousness there as deliverance. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay, okay. So, for the righteousness of God is revealed in it from faith to faith, just as it is written. But the one who is righteous by faith will live. Are you going back to a different understanding of righteous in 17b? Where that that's not going to be properly understood as delivered, deliverance, right? But the one who is delivered um, by faith would not be true. Of you Jesus. could say the delivered one. Well, yeah, you could say the delivered one. Yeah, the righteous one tends to be the way that it's translated, or the the righteous whoever is righteous. So I'm not that concerned with. Well, I mean, I, the I don't content know. of that because says... you know from the previous verse that it's really all about deliverance. So Jesus is the deliverance of God. Okay. There. But the the delivered one by faith will live. Through faith, fidelity, something like that. Yeah. Will live. Say to die. Okay. Are you going to continue or? Yeah, to, where, I mean, yeah. I'm just seeing where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think that that's pointing to Jesus's faithfulness so do specifically. You understand Jesus. every so, every instance is uh, interpreted this way as Jesus's faithfulness. It's never talking about uh, uh, Pistis Christi. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't really gotten to that. I'm talking about the specific text which doesn't have that construction okay but it is a faith text right there um so if i can go to yeah sure sorry 
a text that has the actual construction there. Um, I think this is actually the clincher for me. Um, Clint. The clincher. Okay, so Romans 3, 21 to 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Sounds a lot like 17. Uh, being yeah, it's a, it's a resumption of it, as we talked about before. Being, testi- <laughs> being testified about by the law and the prophets, that is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Right, so let me uh, translate this myself. Let me get the Greek. Are you just going to flex on us with the Greek Bible? Yes. All right. Flex straight into a clinch. Right into the clincher. Okay. Okay. So, let's see. Oh, it's awful. You still drinking that? Yeah. I'm pretending to drink beer. How dare you? Just ditch it, dude. Um, okay, so the the, uh, the right act of God, in this case, it's a saving act, is made clear, revealed, apart from works prescribed by Torah, the Torah, but witnessed to by the Torah and the prophets, that is to say, the right saving act of God has been made clear through what are our options here? Faith in or the faith of? To all who believe. Right. Which one is it? Uh, If I had to, I don't know. Hmm? Which one is it? Is it the faith of? Well, what makes sense here? Where is God's righteousness being disclosed? What I, mean, I misunderstood the question. Whatever you're trying to do, it went over my head. Sorry if I ruined your clinch. Sorry. So our <laughs> options are the faith of Jesus Christ, right, or your faith in Jesus Christ, right. Where is God's righteousness being oh, revealed? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, the faith of Jesus Christ to all who believe. So there's still the conditional statement on the end. Yes. No. Not necessarily. Could be a response. Um, but if it's B, if it's the second one, which is your faith, right? there's a redundancy there again. Made clear through your faith to all who believe. Right. Or through there faith be a in redundancy. Christ. To yeah, so what I'm saying is, yeah, yeah. even if we understand it's it. It's got to be the faithfulness of Christ. Yeah, the, yeah. the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who right. believe. Mm-hmm. Is the insinuation is that it's not for those who don't believe? It doesn't say that. Well, it says it's for those who believe. To all who believe, yeah. yeah. I mean, because they're responding to it, but it's not presupposing a kind of condition. I would agree with you that people who don't respond in faith aren't participating in the benefits of Christ's reality here and now. 
I would agree with you totally. And I think faith is a mandatory response, but it's not a condition. I think it's a mandatory, Those are two very mandatory response and condition is the same thing. No, because condition sets, sets you up in a situation where you are either in or you'll eventually be completely out of that situation. Well, not really. I'm saying I think the word condition fits your situation as well. I think what the, the actual distinction between us is not whether or not it's a condition, but just if that condition will be met by everyone. It really just comes down to the universalism. I just don't see that as a condition. But it's a necessary thing. Like, And that's why you say everyone will have... It's a mandatory response, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's not a condition. The, a condition is a very specific thing. Okay. If you meet X or not... So if you meet X, you will be a part of this. If you, you don't meet that X, part. then you will be... No, I'm saying that that's how conditions get set up. Right. I'm uh, not I think that's setting up a dichotomy. That's setting up a dichotomy. That's that's what a condition is. Okay, so a condition would be... Well, it might be as an example of one, but... It, that's what conditionality is, yeah. Uh, I would say that a condition is you must meet condition X in order to get Y. And in this case, it is you must have faith in order to be saved. And you agree with that. No, I'm saying... What you don't not, agree with you, is you, if no, you, you don't have in, faith, you won't be saved. That's what you don't agree with. So you, you, you put it in a way that I wouldn't put it. Okay. Um, so what I'm saying is uh, that God's saving activity in Christ meets us as a gift. It's grace mm -hmm. all the way down. Agreed. And even our response is... A result of God's spirit and God's grace. So our response is coming from God, too. So it's not a condition. It's coming from God. Um, but it would be true to say there will be no people who are saved that don't also have faith. Actually, I don't know. Um, it seems like the uh, accounts of judgment I was talking about don't require faith. It seems like they're the result of being the purgation of the flesh and all the bad stuff okay. that we've been involved with. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, so maybe but again, I, I, I don't want to say that, um, and I don't think we have warrant from Paul to say that faith is this sort of condition that you have to meet yourself exerting some sort of will or choice on the matter. That's probably actually where we differ more strongly. Mm -hmm. You do you see faith as a choice that you make? Uh yeah, yeah. How do you know? How do I know? Yeah, where what evidence do you have that faith is a choice that you make? Um so I'm understanding the word faith as something like uh trust. So I put my trust in things all the time. That's my choice to do. What do you so. do when you put your trust in something? You believe that it's, you do this, you do what Paul says in Romans four about Abraham. You believe that that which you're putting, the object which you're putting your trust in is going to do that, which it's, you know, if we're talking about an object, then that which it's supposed to do. Uh, or in the case of God, that he, mm. he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Um, so Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
he believes specifically that God was going to bless him and give him descendants and everything that came along in the covenant. Um, Abraham believed yeah. that God would do what he—the promise. He believed the promise. He trusted that God would do what he says he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have any reason to think that that was no. Abraham's choice. You don't have any reason? I don't think that I do. So it's okay. The, yeah, I guess I'm I'm seeing faith less as a sort of choice that you make according to a certain kind of freedom and agency and more in terms of a response to a reality that's confronting you, which are different things. But a response to a, the, the way to get straight to – Which the, tends to be how we yeah. – yeah. The way to get ahead, straight sorry. to the heart of it is just to say, can someone reject God? Yes. And if you say yes, then I think you just that's what I mean by choice. You could reject God or you could accept his gift. So it's a gift, I agree, and you can accept or deny. Are both equally free. You know, some people on account of their anthropology would say that we're more inclined to sin and reject God. And some people are hard and fast determinists and think that we literally cannot respond to God in faith apart from the regeneration. Okay, but are both equally free choices? To choose God or not? If you're asking me, I don't see why they wouldn't be. Yeah, uh, you yeah. specifically, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so we're under the slavery of sin. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, we might have an, more of an inclination to sin and reject God than to uh, accept him. But I, I'm just – I'm going back to, like, say, Genesis where uh, I just don't see – and I'm, I'm, I'm really speaking in conversation with Calvinists, which is hard for me to pin you down on because, like, sometimes you talk like a Calvinist and then other times you're clearly not. Uh, we've talked. Well, I'm about, just a Bardian. Yeah, Bardian. Yeah, yeah good old Bardian. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I know we talked about it before, so that's why I was okay saying it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't see like our like my mental capacity to make decisions or my uh, agency being affected by this Genesis three fall. I understand that sin and death enters think, the world, yeah, and now yeah. I'm go- now I'm going to die. But I don't think it's now like now I can't think properly. Do you think Paul thinks that he thinks that if you will what is right, you can't do it in Romans seven? Yeah, it's not how I, I understand what he's saying there. But uh, I don't know. Do you want to go there? Do you want to pull it up? <laughs> it's up to you. I mean, I'll to. go down I, rabbit holes with you. I just don't know which no, ones you want to. You don't have to. Okay, um, no, that's fine. So part of what I'm what I'm really saying is uh, that I don't want to talk about faith as a choice that you make that's equivalent to other choices that are sort of in front of you, whether that be to sin or to do bad stuff. I think that's a horrible imposition of modern accounts of freedom onto the Bible. Uh, say it one more time. Um, Sorry, I was trying to read a comment. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. Um, I I don't want to set up faith or responding to Christ. I don't want to put that up at the same level as rejecting that. 
Wow. As if they're the they're equivalent options, right? Well, they're but just, you have to do that just the logical... to go a certain kind of freedom. Yeah. Well, what what I'm saying is this is a, a egregious imposition of modern accounts of freedom onto the text. I don't think I don't think ancient people thought this way, and I don't know why we think that they did. But you don't in terms of they... choosing different options. Yeah, you don't think that it's impossible to reject Christ. People do it all the time. Right. So, I mean, what do you yeah. think? That there's like a, a more of an inclination to do that? And in that oh, sense, yeah. I mean, in yeah, that you, sense, they're not equal. By, being, yes, being enslaved by the powers of sin and death means that we are bent toward all of that stuff. Okay. So, it does being condition. enslaved by the powers of sin and death mean that it's impossible for you to respond to God in faith? Apart from yes, oh, it does. Okay. Apart so, from apart from God's initiative, yes. Okay. Of well, now that I don't even disagree with, but I just think the initiative has already taken place when He died on the cross for me. Now I can respond to Him. Well, so you don't see that in terms of election, God choosing us in Christ, Ephesians one yes, stuff. Yes, yes, He chooses God. us in Christ. I see it as you become in Christ. You you become in Christ. Through faith, so that's how you unite to Christ. Now, now it's it's still true to say those in Christ are predetermined to go to this destination. Uh, it's just like getting on an airplane. You can get on the airplane once you're on. There's no getting off. You're going to the destination. Um, but you choose whether or not you believe in Christ. You choose whether or not to get on the airplane. Yeah, I think that language of choice is not what's going on in Paul or in the Bible generally. Um, I don't think that's – I mean, I don't know. It smuggles in all sorts of stuff from our modern world, and I feel like it's – I don't think it's mo quite modern, though. I think it's it's just – like I said – I mean, the idea of, of free will is a modern thing. So why is it that I'm not um, – uh, it's not impossible for me to reject Christ, but it's – now it's impossible. That's unfreedom. Yeah, it's unfreedom. Yeah. But now it's impossible for me the to accept them. collusion with unfreedom. It's like, you do, we don't apply these concepts to anything else. I'm free, okay. I'm free to I'm choose. Not, I'm not concerned with that. No, I know. I'm, I'm saying that's just where I'm coming yeah. from is that yeah. I'm free to do alternatives in every other area. Sure. We, 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 uh, I think I brought this up last time. I, we, that's what we think is going on because these are the philosophical categories that have been handed to us by modernity specifically. Um, so it seems like that's true. And I would agree with you. It seems like I can choose to like be in this interview or not, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure, I would grant that, yes. But when we're talking about God and when we're talking about Jesus and when we're talking about faith and theology, I worry about smuggling that stuff into that conversation specifically. And if that means uh, pushing aside how we use freedom in everyday life, I'm okay with that. Um, yeah. And, uh, maybe it'll be yeah. helpful for us to go to, and by the way, this isn't my gotcha question to John. It's John's own gotcha question to himself. Um, <laughs> if, if faith is not a condition, then how do you explain texts like Romans 10, 19? 
Yeah. And you mentioned John 3.16 as well. You're welcome to address that as well. I just thought I would stick with Paul. That's kind of an inferior question, but... Uh, Do what? Thank you, me, for asking these questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make it clear that I'm not trying to gotcha John. Oh, no, no. I yeah. Sorry, I was just... Um, yeah, so going to Romans 10.9... Oh, it's 10, 9. Um, Sorry. Yeah. 10, 9. I, I typed yeah. in the wrong thing. Go ahead. So the sentence is obviously structured conditionally. That's, we can read it. Uh -huh. it's, it's very clear. But I don't want to sort of overinterpret this. I think, strictly speaking, the conditional relationship in this sentence relates the content of the protesis and the apodosis of the sentence and nothing more so those who confess and believe in this fashion will be saved so we could put it in terms of if a is present then so is b a is the condition that if present b correlates to that right, right. so I, I don't think faith is a mandatory I do think faith is a mandatory response, not don't think. I do think it's a mandatory response to participating in Christ, as I said. But that doesn't mean the entire saving paradigm is a conditional one. Um, so think about this example. So if someone is born in the UK, he or she is a British citizen, right? Yeah. It doesn't follow from that that the person chose to be born in the UK. So the sentence in verse 9 does not actually speak directly to the causality of A in conditional terms. And this is how it's often assumed, right? The saving belief and confession of the Christian is itself a condition that can be undertaken voluntarily. It's not something that's being undertaken voluntarily. That's actually a false extension of the grammatical structure. Well, it just says, this. if you confess, there's no other agents involved. What? So, yeah, so the causa there is no causality there. You are not causing the confession is what you're trying to say. Yeah, it's a second-class conditional, which is just, could be rendered um, when you believe in Jesus or believe in Jesus as Lord and God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. I mean, you're, um, you're it's not that grammatical rearrangement of it. It's still the you that's confessing. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. But there's just no, mention I don't know of how that, else. I don't know how that, I don't know how that undercuts anything that I've committed to. You want to about say, well, you want to say that God is causing it, right? I think old. I mean, in other passages, we have Jesus being the faithful one. Um, I think we have a response. So we, we could talk about human faith too, and I think yeah. this is one passage that yeah. gets at human faith um, as a response to God's faithfulness in Christ. But um, I just don't think this sentence gets you to a conditional kind of faith across the board in Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just do, especially considering the next verses, but um, what? Um, so you're, okay, so what do you make of the idea that G, if the Pistis Christi genitive construction is talking about Jesus, Jesus' own oh, faith, yeah, yeah. 
Does that complicate anything for you? No, not to me. I was going to say that I think it's both. I mean, I think there's instances where, like you were saying, it's clearly talking How, about it's talking about the yeah. obedience of Jesus. It's talking about the faithfulness of Jesus. Um, yeah. You have you don't have any. Uh, if you buy that that account of. Uh -huh. um, yeah, that is the gift. Uh, that is God's grace. It's his act yeah, of grace. Yeah, if, if you buy the account of the genitive being read in that fashion, I don't know where you're going to say that we have to have faith in order to be in Christ, like ourselves. Where are you going for that? I, I'm just I'm saying that um, I agree with you that Christ's the, faithfulness the, the is— the genitive is actually attached to justification stuff. So we're justified by the faithfulness of Christ in those texts. Um, yeah, you are, if you believe in him, to all who believe, yeah. Yeah, but that's, again... I don't think it's a blanket statement. Like, uh, I don't think yeah. at the moment that Christ died, everybody became justified. I think it has to be applied through faith. That's... Huh? <laughs> it has to be, yeah, but... I think your so we can move on, but uh, I think your presupposing an account of agency and freedom that sets up a kind of uh, um, how do I want to put this? It seems to set up a kind of zero sum account between God and what God is doing and between human beings. So either God is doing stuff all the way down or human beings are contributed to it, contributing, contributing to it in some way. Um, so there's sort of a clash there. Do you, do you see God's agency no, no, kind of pushed? No, what I would say is, is, is there a, is there a competitive account there for you? No, what I would it's a, uh, uh, it's a both and. It's a whatever the term is I'm looking for. But it's it's like this. So uh, the gift of God, the grace of God, is the faithful act of Jesus, like you were talking about. Uh, it's Christ's faithfulness. Which justifies you, right? It saves you. If you receive it, yes. So that's where it's both. Yeah. It, does, we don't, it never says if you receive it. It, it says, says to all receive in that text. Right, so I'm excluding um, so those that, who don't that believe. Could equally mean, no, but that could equally mean just simply to all who are responding to okay. it. That's what I mean, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, not if you respond to it, and if you don't, then you It's applied in to trouble. those who respond. Uh. Uh, they experience it in a way that, yeah, I mean, the the people who respond to it are the only ones who can actually sort of become a part of it now. Um, that's but that's, that's, I mean. a, that, that's very different than saying that ah. if you don't do it, then you're in trouble. Yeah, but those I, are different. Things. I just feel like you reworded what I said and agreed to it and then said it's different. I, I think I based, no, but so do you think that people who don't are in trouble? Uh, people, yeah, I think that. Uh... Yeah. That's not what it says, though. It doesn't so say they're it, in trouble. No, it doesn't say they're in trouble, but it says yeah. right. the only people who receive it are to all who believe. Right. That's fine. Yeah, and I agree he's with not that. Talking, I think you're inserting he, He's it. just not talking about the punishment in that case, yeah. Why Why wouldn't he if it was so important? Why, like, it, 
I think I think, he's, I think essentially I think he essentially he's saying in order to receive this you must believe, and I think that's important enough. I don't think you need the threat of, in my case, annihilationism, in somebody else's case, <laughs> eternal conscious torment. Um, okay, so I think you, he does mention it elsewhere, but yeah, in that text he doesn't. Yeah. I don't see why he has to in order to mean it conditionally, but. Yeah, but it, those are equally important, I would think. If, yeah, if people I mean, are in trouble, could, Paul, Paul yeah, should we could think tell of people that if, that if they don't have faith, they would be in trouble. Paul, Paul should tell them that if he cares about them, right? Oh, I think he does. Yeah, he's just not there. Uh, in Romans? <laughs> uh, in Romans, I'm not sure. I'd have to look around. But uh... <laughs> yeah. So I think that's – so just to summarize where I see the difference, and we can obviously move on. Okay. I think you're inserting a different kind of uh, agency into this and also yeah. the negative aspect of this. Yeah. Um, and I'm just not wanting to go there. Yeah. I'm, I don't think that that's entailed in the faith stuff yeah. in Romans and elsewhere. So Let's see. Before um, moving on, yeah, I just want to summarize by saying I, I just want to say what the Bible says and not twist it up, John. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, uh yeah i'm i'm a i'm a bible believing christian i love the bible i want to hear what it says to me um consequently faith comes by hearing but anyway we, we can move on yeah uh, <laughs> let's see that kind of really covered all the questions didn't it um i wrote down some follow-up things to ask you depending on what you might say in response but I think we've we've gone an hour and a half. You said it wouldn't go very long. Sorry, man. Ninety minutes in, and you're still trying with that fake beer, Spartan theology. <laughs> <laughs> yep, basically. Next time, I'll, I'll have a real beer. <laughs> a I'll, real I'll, I'll have to actually I'm, I'm read the freaking label first. Well, I got I saw it. I really yeah, like Western dude. Sun. This Western Sun is just down the road from me. It's a distillery. They make vodka, uh, which I don't really drink ever. But I've had it before, and it tasted really good. I went to a concert at their distillery. They got a little backyard patio type thing. Uh, and it was really good. And so I thought, oh, wow, they have a beer. I want to try that. And I just grabbed it. Didn't even look at it. You're supposed to, it's a ginger premium non-alcoholic soft drink. <laughs> and it's got instructions on the it's back. A, it says soft drink yeah. on it. Oh my God. It's got instructions on the back of how you're supposed to mix it with their vodka and kind of make a mixed drink of it. And I just said, beer, beer me. <laughs> Tastes like crap. Amazing. Yeah. I'm sorry you suffered through that. But... It was only about seven yeah. bucks, which should have been the clue. But for a six pack, it was only seven bucks, which should have, you know, made me realize <laughs> that, uh, yeah, it basically is ginger ale, but much stronger. Yeah, I'm sure it's not a great, like, it's very, does it have, like, a bite? Yeah, it's very gingery. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of tastes like cinnamon almost. That's why it's supposed <laughs> to be mixed with stuff. Yeah. That's why it's strong. It's strong because you're supposed to be mixing it with something. Because you're supposed to put it in other stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It's probably you're probably not supposed to drink it straight. I'll just it's probably a warning. You're the one person. It's probably a warning. You're the one Do not drink. Never done it. Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna like break out in hives. <laughs> oh man. Well, it's a lot of fun, John. Uh, really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. Um, we'll sign off to the audience. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, we'll be doing this hopefully. Uh, 
more often just kind of sitting down talking about different theological concepts, uh, fighting back and forth, that sort of stuff, drinking beer. Um, so yeah, if you want to see more of the same, stick around. I'm gonna we're labeling it. Uh, uh, what's it called? The, uh, theology on tap. So I've kind of I'm gonna build a little playlist of them. But uh, yeah, that's what the, the segment will be. Uh, I think it's gonna work out great. Um, I enjoy doing it for cool. one, and two, it's like you know, I do too. yeah. You know, if I can't get an interview in or something like I normally do, then we can. And John, he's always got plenty to say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks so much Absolutely. for joining us. Thanks, guys. I yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> thanks yeah. so much for joining us, guys. Uh, if you uh, like the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review on the podcast, and of course, if you want to support the mission of spreading and defending the truth of Christianity, just follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter for as little as a dollar a month. And with that support, you get access to bonus material, all sorts of stuff over at Patreon. So thanks so much, guys. And again, thanks, John. I really appreciate it. For sure, man. Thanks.